Well, I think most of us would probably agree that 2022 was better in many ways than uh, 2021, and especially better than uh, 2020, right? But as we, as we stand on the, uh, the precipice of another year, there, there's still a great deal of uncertainty in the air, especially for those of us that understand and follow Bible prophecy. Uh, there's uh, always talk in the mainstream media about another pandemic. Uh, the economy is always getting a lot of attention, and a lot of people feel it's on life support. Then you've got the Russia-Ukraine uh, issue with uh, drumbeats of war, not to mention China. Uh, and uh, North Korea and Iran, you name it. Then there's just the general moral decline of uh, our country, uh, departing from basic moral principles and certainly departing from biblical principles. There are the many losses of freedoms that we see mounting up all around us. Then we have unreliable elections, so for many we feel like there's very little we can do anyway. And again, for students of prophecy, it sure seems like the, the return of the Lord is getting closer. It will be soon, right? I like that. I think that's probably true. Can't set dates. We don't know for sure. It's ultimately the Lord is the arbiter of the timetable. It may be um, a, long, a long time, but the stage sure seems to be uh, being set, and we are, I think, wise to ask, could this be the year? Uh, the fact of the matter is things change. Things change. And uh, to quote my friend uh, Paul Roberts, you didn't know you were going to get quoted today, did you? Uh, change is our friend, right? Well, it is. It should be because change is inevitable. It's a reality. Of course, as I've quoted many times, Mark Twain famously said, the only one that likes change is a wet baby. Uh, but uh, the fact is, year to year, time after time, things change. And sometimes things change with such force and significance that they constitute a revolution. You know, when revolutions occur, they don't occur little by little, gradually over an extended period of time. They do so at a sudden moment in time. I mean, certainly for those paying attention, you might see the signs coming. Uh, they don't come out of nowhere. But the actual moment of a revolution is usually, you know, not foreseen, anticipated, or expected. And even if it is, it, the, 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 the sudden moment when it does actually take place brings with it such a major change that it's, uh, that it's life-changing, it's world-changing. You know, the pages of world history are actually filled with revolutions that changed the world. We don't have to go back into ancient history. We can just go back, you know, two or three hundred years. First of all, the American Revolution. You know, tensions between the British and the 13 colonies were mounting, and it ultimately led to the founding of arguably the greatest and mightiest nation in history. That was 17, what, 1760s to 1780s, roughly. And then right on the heels of that, you had the French Revolution, when an uprising occurred in France, where people were frustrated with the monarchy, because they were collecting heavy taxes, but really giving very little in return. Sounds familiar, right? Um, so they turned their widespread anger on uh, King Louis XVI. And on July 14, 1789, they, these revolutionaries stormed the Bastille, and, uh, and uh, the, the monarchy was overthrown. And then you've got, in the early 20th century, the Russian Revolution. 
In October of 1917, revolutionaries led by the leftist Bolshevik party and their leader Vladimir Lenin stormed the Winter Palace, taking power in a coup d'etat. And for five years, civil war uh, consumed Russia, ultimately resulting in a victory for Lenin and the establishment of the Soviet Union. And then, of course, there was, after World War II, the Chinese Communist Revolution in 1949, an uprising that established the People's Republic of China under the rule of Mao Zedong. Well, 500 years before Christ, the prophet Haggai spoke of another future global revolution. And it will be a revolution to beat all revolutions. Haggai wrote to a country that had lost its glory. By the way, that I, that's a picture of Haggai. I found it on the internet, so it has to be, has to be true. <laughs> but it was a post-exilic community. They were apathetic, discouraged. The walls were torn down. The city of Jerusalem still needed repair and was unfinished. The temple was unfinished. And Haggai comes along and he tells God's people uh, that although the glory had faded, a time is coming when God's glory will fill the temple like never before. And you know, it will cover the face of the earth. He's referring here to the future messianic kingdom. But he says, in the meantime, the manifestation of God's glory comes through God's people. And the Israelites needed to straighten up. They needed to stop wallowing around in gloom and doom and, and recognize that they have a responsibility to, to be the light, to, to rebuild the temple and, and to help the world see God's glory. The, the name Haggai means feast or festive. He was the first prophet through whom God spoke to the Judeans after they returned from Babylon where they had been in exile. And as you can see on the screen there, his prophecy is dated from 520 B.C. We know that with almost pinpoint accuracy because of the internal clues. It tells us in verse 1 that this, his prophecy is from the second year of Darius I, the Persian king, and we know when he reigned. So Haggai was prophesying in that one year the year 520 B.C. We don't know a whole lot about Haggai's personal life. Uh, we can assume he was a very old man, though, because he seems to remember Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed some 67 years earlier. And like a, a wise old sage, Haggai reflects on the glorious days of yesterday, of yesteryear, and he, he communicates that there is hope for a better day in the future. It makes sense that he would have seen the temple because the way he describes the coming glory seems to uh, describe someone who recognizes the peak of God's glory in the temple. So the city of Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, and the Judeans who remained in the city at that time had been carried off into exile. Many Jews had been in captive actually since 605 B.C., even earlier, and in Haggai's day, some 70 or 80 years later, they began to return. And the temple was being rebuilt under Zerubbabel. The walls would be rebuilt under Nehemiah. And uh, the excitement over returning to their land, though, was, was kind of short-lived. Because through various misrepresentations from other global leaders, like the Persian authorities in that time of the Persian Empire, Judah's enemies succeeded in bringing the rebuilding project to a halt. And that's why the people were so discouraged and apathetic 
And, and Haggai comes on the scene for just such a time as that to awaken God's people and to spur them on to faithfulness. If I could paraphrase his message, it would be what you see before you, the ashes, the rubble, the unfinished temple, that's not a fair representation of God's glory. A time is coming when God's glory will be revealed over the face of the whole earth. And Israel will experience a place of prominence once again, globally. Listen to what Haggai wrote in the key verse, verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, and then notice his parenthetical, it's a little while. I mean, I'm going to talk to Haggai when we get to heaven and explain to him what a little while means. <laughs> It sure seems like it's been longer than a little while. But he says, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Notice the, it's capitalized there. That's referring to who? Christ, the Messiah. And I will fill this temple with glory. You can just imagine them hearing this prophecy, hearing the words coming from Haggai's mouth, the words of Yahweh himself being spoken through the prophet, and then turning and looking at the temple and thinking, are you serious? I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the point is that because all material wealth ultimately belongs to God, then, you know, and is therefore of no value to him because he makes it all, What's really central is God's glory. Don't put your hope, he's saying, in your material possessions. And then he says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. So according to Haggai, there is a future revolution that will be unlike any other before or after it. Now let's shift gears again on our timeline Almost 550 years after Haggai, the global revolution had still not arrived. However, there was some excitement in the air once again because uh, just as in Haggai's day the exiles had begun to return in the first century, the birth of Messiah had occurred and the dawn of Christianity. And people were wondering when John the Baptist and Jesus himself said the kingdom is at hand, has it finally come? Is the revolution finally upon us at long last but as time went on in the church age and years turned into decades the revolution still had not come hope was once again beginning to wane so enter the anonymous writer of the book of hebrews who quotes haggai the prophet and refers once again to this coming revolution so with that backdrop let's turn to hebrews chapter 12 now those of you that have been with us for the last two and a half years or so. You know, we taught through the book of Hebrews here at Plum Creek Chapel, but it's been a while, and, uh, and I'm looking at a passage we've already looked at, but coming at it from a different uh, perspective with a different outline uh, this time. Uh, the revolution that Haggai and the writer of Hebrews warned about has not yet arrived. It is still forthcoming, and the writer of Hebrews is writing in the year roughly 67 to 68 A.D. The church is some 30 years old. And he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were really becoming uh, discouraged and distraught over the fact that Rome was beginning to really persecute Christians. I mean, burning them at the stake, raiding their homes. Uh, really, the persecution of the church three decades in was at its all-time high 
in church history at that moment. And so these Jewish Christians were contemplating abandoning the church, uh, forsaking the faith, and going back to Judaism, which was still under the protective cover of, of Rome at that point, still in cahoots with, with Rome. And so really the whole book of Hebrews, which may well have been written by Paul, we, I tend to think it was, we can't say for certain though, uh, if it was written by Paul, as a lot of scholars believe, then it would have been Paul's last letter after 2 Timothy, shortly before he died. Uh, but uh, it was written at a time when these, these Jewish Christians really needed to be reminded that a better day uh, was coming. So the writer here says, as he quotes Haggai, that indeed it is coming. So my question for us this morning is, what would it look like when this ultimate revolution happens? And could it be this year? Could it be this year? So I want us to take a closer look at this passage, these five simple verses. And I want to I point out in this passage, first of all, three changes that are inevitable. Three changes that are inevitable. Secondly, one change that will never happen. And finally, one change that we should all hope happens. Let's look at three changes that are inevitable first. Uh, you know, often because anticipated changes are delayed, we forget about them. The longer you wait for something, the more your hope tends to wane. And yet, the Bible reminds us, as regards this ultimate revolution, that there are these three things that are guaranteed to happen. Number one, life as we know it will change someday. Life as we know it will change someday. You know, this is a concept that's been bandied about quite a bit since COVID. And indeed, the uh, pre-planned pandemic did bring about colossal change, just as the Luciferians wanted it to, in life as we know it. You know, they even talk about B.C. and A.C., before COVID and after COVID, and how we'll never return to normal. And, and how many times have we heard, this is the new normal, right? So yes, there are fundamental changes that affect our lives from time to time. But the writer of Hebrews harkens back to Haggai and points to a time when there will be an unprecedented life change. Life as we know it will change. Listen to what he says in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, remember, these are Jewish believers, Jews who became Christians by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins. And so, throughout the book of Hebrews, he makes frequent reference to the ancient Israel, the Israelites of old and Moses' day and Abraham's day uh, to kind of point out the fact that what they have in Christ is so much better than anything they had under the old covenant with Moses. And so here he's referring uh, to the time when uh, the, the children of Israel, the, the ancestors of these Jewish believers, had disobeyed God's voice uh, at Mount Sinai. And therefore they faced God's discipline. And he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they, your ancestors, did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now don't read into this more than is there. A lot of people who have this naive heaven-hell approach to life think that he's threatening them with hell. A believer never has to be worried about hell. Once you've come to faith in Christ, Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. He says in John that you shall, when you trust in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never face judgment. He doesn't mention hell or any type of eternal 
damnation here. He's just saying there are consequences, just as there were for the children of Israel, uh, all of whom, except for Aaron uh, and Caleb, died in the wilderness. But they're not in hell. They just didn't get the blessings of the promised land. Moses certainly is not in hell, and yet he, because of his unbelief, faced consequences. And he's using that analogy for the first century Christians, and by, by extension us today, to say, look, don't refuse the voice of the Lord. Don't turn your back on Him. He's a powerful, almighty God. And one day, life as we know it will change. And He will shake the earth, as, he, as Haggai says, and as he's about to quote. So God's voice will be heard from heaven someday. The Israelites heard one day God's voice from the mountain. And one day the world will hear God's voice from heaven. We talked about that at our Christmas Eve service a little bit. So we see several references to this. First of all, at the rapture, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? A shout. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise, Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So yes, the Lord is going to speak and one day life as we know it will change. We could go back to uh, Joel's prophecy. Uh, Joel wrote around the late uh, Fifth, late 6th century, so 597 is the date of Joel's prophecy about a coming day in which God would judge His people for their lack of obedience. And indeed, God is going to pour out His judgment in that tribulation period. And Joel compared the devastating judgment that is coming to a locust invasion. And he says, uh, you know, what Joel said about this coming judgment still lies in the future, in the, in the eschaton. You know, we talk about eschatology or the study of the end times. That's the Greek word eschaton, the end times. And Joel contains some of the most powerful second coming passages in, among all the Old Testament prophets. And so writing just some 70 or 80 years before Haggai, this is what Joel said. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice, from Jerusalem. Life as we know it is going to change. The 8th century B.C. prophet Isaiah said something similar speaking of the Lord's return. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud, and he shall prevail against his enemies. Jesus describes his return in the Olivet Discourse the day before he was betrayed in the garden arrested, tried, and crucified, and laid in the tomb some 24 hours later. When he said immediately after the tribulation, notice the second coming occurs after the tribulation, the rapture occurs before it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So life as we know it will change, but number two, another change that is inevitable is one day the earth itself will change. The earth itself will change, and this is where the writer of Hebrews harkens back to Haggai and quotes that same passage we read a moment ago. And what is so important about this uh, revolution or this part of the coming global revolution to understand is that this is what makes the ridiculous you know, climate change hoax and the mother earthers and the, the hug a tree folks, so absurd and so ridiculous. <laughs> See, we are, we are worshiping the created when we do that instead of the creator. Now, of course, we're to be good stewards of what God has given us on this earth, but we're also to have dominion 
And we don't need to worship a tree or worship the sun or worship, you know, the, the earth. Uh, we worship the creator of the earth. Our help, as David said, doesn't come from the hills. It comes from the maker of the hills, right? And so one day the earth will change. That's inevitable. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Who, talking about that voice from heaven, whose voice then, back at Mount Sinai, shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Directly quoting Haggai. And then the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, provides some commentary when he says, Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. In other words, this isn't going to be a renovation or putting a band-aid on this sin-stricken earth under the curse of sin. It's going to be a complete removal and a recreation. Uh, he says, as of things that are made, that the things which remain cannot be shaken. The new heaven and the earth, new earth will be sin-free at the end of the age when all is said and done. And for that, I want us to turn to Second Peter as a, another focal passage. So we've looked at Haggai, Hebrews, and now I want to spend a moment in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter was the last epistle written by Peter right before his death, similar to Second Timothy, written around 64 A.D., and he's, he's writing... Uh, to, to basically encourage Christians to grow spiritually, to become mature, so that they can combat apostasy as they look forward to the Lord's return. Second Peter, especially here in chapter 3, has a lot to say about the Lord's return. And it, it really reads like a playbook for today, doesn't it? What do we need more than anything today in, in a time such as this when the signs of the times are all around us? We need believers to grow spiritually mature so that we can combat apostasy when so many churches are abandoning from the faithful teaching of God's Word and be you know, empowered to look for, encouraged to look forward to the Lord's return. That's exactly what Peter was telling his audience in 64 AD. We'll pick it up in chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Well, we're living in the last days. The last days is the entire church age, 2,000 years. But Peter here predicts that someday in these last days, scoffers will come. Well, they've come, walking according to their own lust. And what are they scoffing at? What are they ridiculing and saying? They're saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? You know, where is this Jesus that you keep saying is going to split the eastern sky and come back on the Mount of Olives? Where is he? You know, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The reference to the fathers is the Old Testament fathers, the patriarchs, the prophets, and these scoffers uh, that Peter is taking the voice of here are saying, look, this, this coming of Christ and the coming global revolution that you're expecting, they were wrong. <laughs> They've long since dead and, they're long since dead and gone and it still hasn't happened. And what does Peter say to them? Well, this they willfully forget. <laughs> that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and standing uh, through water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So Peter is basically citing two events in the creation of the world that should give anyone pause before they ridicule the prophetic word of Almighty God. He said, first of all, God created the world by His word. And second of all, God has intervened in the world in the past 
with the global flood and he'll do so again. Uh, you know, when God spoke, the universe came into existence, Genesis 1. And, and, and what did the writer of Hebrews say, by the way, in chapter 11, the preceding chapter to our text this morning? He said in verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. See, these scoffers who think that life is going to continue on just as it is, or that they're going to usher in their own transhumanist utopia apart from the, you know, the authority and power of God's word, uh, what they forget is we serve a powerful God. You know, God spoke, and the dry land separated the waters. Uh, and he goes on to say that, uh, that in verse 7 here, that by the heavens and the earth which are now preserved, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. He used water one time to destroy the earth, and he'll use fire the next time. And he says, those of you who are scoffing, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Let me remind you, God doesn't work on your timetable. Do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It's, it's stunning to me how many people read that and turn this into some formulaic principle for interpreting other references to years in the Old Testament. This is just a metaphor of, you know, Peter saying, look, the Lord doesn't work on our timetable. What seems like a long time for us or what seemed like a little while to Haggai is, is nothing to the Lord. And he goes on, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The Lord hasn't forgotten his promise. He's not distracted. He's long-suffering toward us. You want, you want to know the simplest answer to the question, why doesn't God bring judgment? Why doesn't he just come back and move us into the final phase of God's plan of the ages and end it all? Here's the simplest answer. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Do you realize if there's an unbeliever on the earth today and the rapture happens today, that unbeliever is going to have a very, very difficult time getting saved after the rapture. They might get saved. We read in Revelation that untold numbers from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language come to faith after the rapture. But the deception will be so great that if they didn't believe the gospel now, we would wonder why they would believe it after when the Antichrist is taking the helm. See, God wants to allow as much time as possible for people to come to faith. That's the simplest answer. It's not profound. It's just taken right from 2 Peter 3.9. And yet our hearts cry out and we say, Lord, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. I mean, how many of you are ready for all the foolishness we see going on to come to an end? I mean, that would be great, right? I mean, I'm a visionary kind of guy. I love to plan and lead and, you know, I've already sketched out 2023 for Not By Works Ministries. I've got all kinds of goals and ideas and so forth. But even a visionary like me would happily step aside and say, come, Lord Jesus. If, I don't, if my goals don't get realized, that's fine because there's nothing better than seeing Jesus face-to-face -face and being with all of our loved ones who are believers in heaven who've gone before us. Then he goes on in verse 11. We're still with Peter here. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, that promise has not been forsaken, forgotten, or abrogated. According to his promise, we look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
See, righteousness today is only seen in the, in the people of God, the believers, the church, the Christians who in, are walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh, walking in the new man, having our positional righteousness live itself out in practical righteousness. That's the only righteousness. If you're looking for righteousness in world leaders, in American leaders, in political leaders, if you're looking for righteousness in globalists, you're looking in the wrong spot. To whatever extent righteousness is visible on the earth today, it's visible in you and in me. But someday... When Christ comes back, righteousness will fill the earth. The prophet Isaiah said something similar. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then we read about this happening at the end of the millennium, uh, at, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the old earth, when Revelation tells us, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And when then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. So life as we know it will change. The earth itself will change. And the third thing that is inevitable, the third change that is inevitable, is the whole world will change. The way it functions, the way it operates, the way it looks. Going back to our text in Hebrews 12, verse 28, says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... And that's really the writer's point, is that you guys, you first century Jewish Christians, are shaking in your boots, afraid of temporal dangers. You know, what is life? I mean, really. I mean, we, our life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We're just sojourners, as Peter said in his first epistle, passing through. And, and what are you so afraid of? Because the kingdom that we're looking for is one that will never be shaken. Never be shaken. And since we're receiving that kingdom, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is the same writer who at the outset of, of uh, his letter here in Hebrews had given us a hint at what the whole letter was about when he says in chapter 2, verse 5, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now in the context here, He's arguing against the notion that somehow angels and this uh, sort of uh, subjective uh, mystical worship that these Jewish Christians were kind of drifting towards uh, were, were better than Jesus Christ himself, their Savior. And so he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels. And to make that point, he references here, and it's subtle, and, and it's, it's kind of a, not even the primary phrase in the sentence, but it's a key phrase theologically in the overall argument of Hebrews. He says, He has not put the world to come of which we speak. What's the writer of Hebrews talking about? The world to come. Not the here and the now, but the world to come. And that world will be put in subjection to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's where we need to keep our eyes fixed. So, three changes that are guaranteed to happen. Life as we know it's going to change someday. The whole earth is going to change and the world as we know it will change. But one change that will never happen. What is it we can count on? You know, in such an unpredictable, unstable time as this, is there anything rock solid? As we await the coming global revolution, is there something we can rest secure on? Well, the writer alludes to this in verse 29 of our text, and that is this. God will never change. God will never change. In fact, the writer says, our God is a consuming fire. He orchestrates any and all change everywhere else, but nothing can change God. 
He himself never changes. He's the one that changes everything else. Malachi, uh, the prophet, in 435 B.C., some 85 years after Haggai, the final writing prophet before the 400 silent years until Christ came, said this, speaking for Yahweh, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Sons of Jacob, there's a reference, a metonym for Israel. And so, in spite of Israel's repeated rebellion and disobedience and lack of faith, God's covenant is unconditional. He will keep His word. And the New Testament, as we just read, talks about that promise that hasn't been fulfilled yet, but it's still coming. And, and we can take comfort as believers in the present church age that if God is a covenant-keeping God with His chosen nation Israel, He will be a covenant-keeping God with us as well. I, the Lord, do not change. And then finally, one change that we hope does happen. One change that we hope does happen. And for this, we'll go back to the first verse in our text, Hebrews 12, 25. The hope that we all should, you know, that the change that we all should hope happens is this, a changed life. So let me just put it this way. If, if you are not planning to change in 2023 personally, you're out of God's will. I'm just going to tell you that. Because our life on earth is a life of yielding to the Spirit, growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord, and, and changing. You know, I wish that the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and got saved... That, that we that we could that the Bible taught you know what I sometimes call poof Christianity, you believe the gospel and poof you're perfect. But you know I know a lot of you in this room and and some of you I've just met, uh, so I can't speak for you. But those of you I know, I can guarantee you you're not perfect. And 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 you just need only talk to my wife if you have any doubts that I'm not perfect. <laughs> uh, of course we're not perfect. So as long as we abide this earth, as long as we're topside this earth, our goal is to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. Walk in the new man, not after the old man. Walk by faith, not by sight. And grow. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get those his audience to do, is to change their perspective and be faithful. That's what Peter was trying to do, to change their perspective and be faithful. That's what Haggai was trying to do 500 years before Christ, to get the post-exilic Jewish community to see, look, it won't always be this way. Buck up. <laughs> you know, that's basically what, what he's saying. And so as believers, we should always be growing. Growing in grace. Growing in the knowledge of our Lord. Growing in spiritual wisdom. So if we go back to verse 1, how did it begin? I mean, the first verse in our text, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. That's the challenge. Remember what we read just a moment ago from 2 Peter. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How does the promise of the coming revolution motivate you and impact you? In light of the coming revolution, what manner of person ought you to be? Peter goes on to tell us in this chapter, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent. To be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Now again, positionally, we're already without spot and blameless because the blood of Christ covers us and we're positionally righteous in Christ. But practically, you know, Christ is going to come back someday to call us to meet him in the air. 
That is going to happen if you believe the Bible. And if you can't believe that, you might as well throw the whole thing out. By the way, uh, just a quick side note. Let me get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. How about that? Turned right to it. I guess I look at 1 Thessalonians a lot. Uh, but notice what he says about the rapture. Verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and by the way, that word if in verse 14, I'm in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, is since in, in the Greek construction. So we could say, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Christ's coming in the air. So here's the point. Anybody who denies the doctrine of the rapture, they are by extension denying the doctrine of the resurrection. You cannot believe in the resurrection of our Lord and reject the doctrine of the rapture, at least not based on what Paul says here. Uh, but, you know, when, when Christ comes back at the rapture, that's going to happen at a moment in time. And as John the Apostle tells us in 1 John 2.28, we hope that when he does come, we're found faithful. It won't impact our eternal destiny. Thankfully, our eternal destiny isn't based upon how good we are or how we perform or whether we somehow hold on to God. We're a child of God, adopted into the family of God, born again uh, the moment we trust in Christ. Positionally, we're righteous. But Peter is saying, be diligent so that we, when he comes, you'll be found in peace without spot and blameless. He goes on to say, Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. There's that word again, right? We did not conspire, by the way. This is just uh, the Lord. Uh, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Paul put it this way in Colossians, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I hope you're planning to change in 2023. By the way, this verse is very meaningful to me, Colossians 1.10. As a young man, it's the first verse I ever memorized. My parents had me and my sisters in a Bible Memory Association uh, program where we had to memorize verses each week. We had little booklets, and you'd get prizes if you said them right. And the first verse I ever memorized was Colossians 1.10. Not a bad verse to have in your memory for the longest time, right? Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So three changes that are inevitable. Life as we know it, the earth, the whole world. One change that will never happen. God will never change. He can be trusted. And one change that we hope happens, a changed life. Will there be a revolution this year? Quite possibly. <laughs> It'll begin with the rapture, and it could be today. It's all in God's hands. But someday we know the world will be shaken, just as Haggai and Hebrews and Peter tell us. And although the ultimate revolution is out of our hands, we do control our own revolution. And as we wait, we want to reject the ungodly apostasy and things that are happening and remain faithful. Remain faithful. So here's the takeaway. In 2023, start a revolution. Start a revolution. I'm talking about a revolution within your own heart, uh, in case the NSA and FBI are listening in, which I'm sure they are. <laughs> Let's just be clear. 
but start a revolution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, timely word from Haggai and from Hebrews, uh, because, Lord, we are a people that do look forward to the soon coming of your Savior to come back and ultimately take the throne. And so, Lord, uh, we want to use that reminder of your promised coming as a motivation to be faithful until you come. So, Lord, I pray that the folks within the sound of my voice that are believers would be motivated to dig deeper into your word, to love more, experience your grace more, share the gospel more. And, uh, and for those who may not know you, I pray that today would be the day that in simple childlike faith they trust in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin. He is the only hope for a lost and dying world. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen.